there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. From Gimlet, this is Reply All. I'm PJ Vote. And I'm Alex Goldman. And I'm here, Shruti. Hi, Shruti. Hi, here, Shruti. Okay, so we are, what are we doing today? Part three. Part yeah, three. We're on the third part of the On the Inside series that we have been doing over the past couple of weeks. If you have not listened to the first two episodes, you're going to be totally lost listening to this one. So go back and listen to the previous two weeks of Reply All. Uh, you won't regret it. But to bring you up to speed, why are we bringing somebody up to speed if we're not? If we've already told them who's left, we just we just split the audience in half. There's okay. people who heard it who should be listening, and people who haven't. So who is this for? This yep. is for the people who've listened to it. We are going to bring them up to speed so that we can launch right into this episode. What do you think it means when you say bring someone up to speed? It means tell to them sur- things they already know. Maybe it's a refresher. Oh boy. Okay, so just as a quick refresher. Shruti, you have been telling the story of Paul Madrowski. Mm-hmm. Um, and you found him because you found his blog and you got really into his blog. And then you actually started talking to him, which led you to his case. Right. Last week, you told the story of Paul's life in high school. In high school, he fell in with this group of basically like small town, small time crooks. So one of those kids, Dean Fawcett, was murdered. And that is the murder that Paul was convicted of. He says that he didn't do it. Either he's telling the truth or he's lying. And besides Paul, the only person who knows for sure what happened is his friend Bob. Bob says he and Paul were there together and Paul murdered Dean. So it's actually really stark. Like either Paul's lying or Bob's lying. Right. And so I wanted to talk to Bob, Bob Faraci. I flew to Chicago, um, went to this building, no clue whether that was his house or not. Uh, I left a note under the door and against all probability, I got a voice message from him saying, hey, this is Bob Fracci. Uh, I'll talk to you. Come meet me at this restaurant today. So I went. He arrived with his girlfriend. He brought his girlfriend? <laughs> right. He brought his girlfriend there, he said, because he was nervous about talking to me. And that just kind of, I, I don't know, he felt protected. Okay. What did he look like? He was very dapper. He had this crisp white shirt. He was about my height clean-shaven head. If you saw him on the street, you had to guess what his job was. Probably finance. Like, he dressed well. Okay. We decided to talk in his car. He had this nice SUV that was parked outside. And we get in. Bob Fraji and I were in the front seat, and his girlfriend sits in the back. And uh, we start talking. So do you need to pull out of here and move somewhere else? No, no we're going to stay I told him I'd stay for a minute. Okay. Well, you're going to be more than a minute, let me tell you. Whatever. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) Uh-oh. 
Um, tell me your name. My name is Robert Faraci. All right. So, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in the town of Barrington until I was about 15. I, multiple places as a younger child. We reloco- relocated. And um, what were you like growing up? I Can I guess? Sure. You were very social. Right. <laughs> um, kind of an entrepreneur type. I wanted to be, but... Uh, what did you want to be? You know, I really wanted to be... Um, I don't know. I, I I can't answer that. I don't. I you know when I I think about it now, I I never really had a plan of what I wanted to do. I was just living life so fast, the fastest that I can, and uh, I never applied myself with anything. I've always tried to take the easy and fast way out, and I've hurt myself tremendously to this day. To this day, Bob says that he has a lot of regrets. He's had at this point two stints in prison. One for two years, another for nine years. He's 48. He's a bartender. But when he talks about meeting Paul, you know, this moment that set off a lot of the bad parts of his life, it's almost as if he's reminiscing. I was a ball buster back then. And, you know, he amused me. You know, not in a, in a funny way where I'm trying to, to be mean, but it, it was just different. You know what I mean? It was just different. What, what amused you about him? Because he was different. He was different, but I could explain it better if if you understood where I come from. How do I feel? Okay, here. I want you to think of Godfather. You've seen that. Do you know who Luca Brasi is? Um, In the beginning of the movie, he was seeing Vito Corleone, and he was practicing on what to say. Don Corleone, thank you for inviting me to your daughter's wedding. He had no personality. There's no fun to this guy. And then there's me. Get the fuck out of here. Just talk to the fucking guy. That's was the difference. That is what the difference was. So Bob was the flashy guy. Paul was the quiet, you know, kind of uptight one. And Bob even at one point says that he, Bob, was like the Joe Pesci character from Goodfellas. And when he said that, it totally clicked for me because Paul had said the exact same thing. I hadn't expected them to tell the same story, but there were so many moments like that in the conversation. And then we get to the night of Dean's murder. Bob just completely, his whole energy shifts. He's suddenly uncomfortable. He's fidgeting, shaking his leg, starts to keep turning the heat on and off in the car. Can you tell me, Robert? Can you can you just tell me? Tell you what? Tell me what happened. Oh, um, this here is all under. I, I don't want to get into this again. So this you is, don't want to talk about? I don't want to okay. talk about that. You're again. This you're opening a can of worms in my life. I am opening a can of worms. Very, I'm very sorry. I feel no, you're no, doing I feel you're doing bad. your job again. I'm not. I'm not upset. I'm, I don't get upset like that. Um, I'm just wondering what your what your point is on doing this. Actually, actually mm-hmm. now. How do I know you're not a PI? How do I know who you really are? You're asking some serious questions. I'm sorry. And I don't know why you're asking these questions. All right. Can I show you this? (sighs) This is a story I did in January. Like something you... And I'm PJ Vogue. Okay, here. Um, We're here because Shruti Pinamanani has a story for us. Yes, I do. Um, So... 
Okay, Sruthi, I don't have to Tell me to tell people what's going on. I don't have to listen yes, to this I'm sorry, I just want to say I'm, I'm not saying, a look, PI. Look, not, okay, besides that, I'm, 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 you're asking me questions that are really, really detailed at this yeah. time. Mm -hmm. These are some questions that a cop would ask me. I'm not saying you're a cop, but these are some very, very serious questions. Can I? I'm sorry, I can see you're getting upset. I'm not, no, trust me, I'm not upset. No, no, I understand. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. So listen, I'll tell you something. There are a few things I don't understand with this, with this whole the the trial the the prosecution's position. Come on, yeah. leave this in the yeah. car. Leave Sorry. this in the car. Uh, come outside. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we get out of the car at this point. Bob is just shaking all over. I tell him, "Listen, I have questions about the night the dean died. I have to know what happened." And he says. I can't talk about it. It's too traumatic. I, I can't get these images out of my head. Eventually, you know, he, he calms down. We get back in the car. I don't want to get into details of, of what happened that night. Okay. I just um, want to tell you this. This is uh, something that uh, I don't care about what these cops, cops say because they don't, they live a different life. They, uh, uh, this poor kid, <laughs> This poor kid, that's all I could say. If it makes, you know, if they, I don't even know how to say it. Which kid, Dean? Yeah. Nobody in this world deserves anything like that. Nobody. Nobody deserves that. Nobody, nobody, nobody. People are going to say a lot of bad things about me after you give them this little interview, which is stupid. But uh, you know what? If you think I did it, then think I did it. I, I'm, I, I don't care. If Paul wants to, if he wants to say this or that, he, he's got to do what he's got to do. But you know what? I live like this because that's who I am. I, I, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. And that's, that's who I am. I didn't know what to do with this. I just decided to try uh, another approach. So before the trial, Bob had given the police tons of contradictory statements about Dean's murder. At first, he said their friend Brian was the killer, and then at some point, Brian dropped out of the story, and then he said Paul was the bad guy. In another statement, he said Paul once held a gun to a baby's head. It, it sounded to me like Bob basically just had thrown anything at the wall to see what would stick. And so I asked him about that. I think one of the police reports, I, that your statements were in there. Yeah. Um, I, you know, under intense pressure like that, I said some stupid things. Mm -hmm. I was under so much pressure. I, you know, think about that. Think about that. And um, I didn't know which way to go. Turn this off. You could do whatever you want. Yeah, right here, right here. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so you're talking to cops. What's like? Was what's going on in your head? Like, I'll, I'm gonna tell them whatever to. Like, Correct. What? Correct. I'm gonna tell them whatever to try to take the heat off me, and I did that, and I lied. Yes, I did. <laughs> believe what you want to believe. You know what I mean? Anyway, Bob says that. The bottom line is he told a lot of lies to the police, but the true story of what happened that night, that's the story he told at trial, and that's the one I should follow. So the trial. I thought that looking at trial documents would give me 
just a more straightforward account, a more straightforward account than Bob was giving me in the car. Because that's the way trials work, right? The prosecution tells a story, the defense tells a different story, and you decide which one you believe. Except that's not what happened at all. Somehow, at Paul and Bob's trial, the prosecution didn't tell one story. They told two. Two stories that didn't at all line up. And here's how that worked. It starts January 17, 1995. Both Bob and Paul, they're co-defendants. So it's the same courtroom, the same prosecutor, but... It's so hard for me to describe. It's like a total, it's a it's like a it's a clown car. Like I've never heard of a trial like this. It's a double jury trial, which means that Bob and Paul gets his own jury. And do the juries get to listen to both people being tried? No. no. So it's it's so it's like a jigsaw puzzle the way the whole thing works together. So there are moments when both juries are in the room at the same time. And then there's moments where Uh, You know, the prosecutors make their opening statement for Bob. Paul's jury has to leave. And then the prosecution makes the opening statement for Paul. So Paul's jury comes back in and Bob's jury leaves. And so each jury essentially saw one trial, but they both saw very different trials. Is that super confusing? No, it's not. Okay. But I mean, was the prosecutor saying in one trial, uh, Bob Faraci is the mastermind of this, and in the other trial, Paul... Madrowski is the mastermind of this? Something like that. Wow. But throughout the trial, which would last five weeks, throughout this trial, the two people who are always there are Bob Faraci at his table and there's Paul Madrowski at his table. So they're seeing each other's trials as well. Yes, exactly. So they're seeing everything. So let me start with Bob's case. The prosecution had a very, very strong case against Bob. Because Bob Fracci had given them a recorded, signed confession. He said, I was there the night the dean was killed. His defense is that he was there, but he didn't do it. He was just, you know, a helpless witness uh, that Paul had done everything. But the problem with that is that it's really, really hard to prove. As Bob's own defense attorney, Beth Miner, explained to me. Who wins cases just saying, well, I was there, but I, you know... I didn't know what he was doing, and I didn't participate, and I didn't help in any sort of way. It's like, oh, right, but you went there with the guy, and you left with the guy, and then you lived with the guy. Right, we're really going to believe that. But he had to tell a story. I mean, he had to get up on the stand, and he had to testify. So even though it was a completely risky move, on February 9th, Bob Fracci took the stand. And remember, only his jury would hear what he had to say. Paul's jury's out of the room. There's a news article about that moment, and I'm reading exactly what Bob said. He said, We, Paul and I, went down the embankment like he was jumping into a swimming pool. I thought this whole thing was a sick joke. I didn't think anybody actually died. I heard some sawing noise, and then he looked up at me with a weird expression. Bob then tells the court that Paul had Dean Fawcett's head in his hands, and he said, quote, this is what I'll do to you and your wife if you ever say anything. Bob says he then vomited. The best witness in the case for me um, was me. I really didn't have any witness. I was basically the only one. And I was on that, I was on that stand for an hour and a half, and I'll never forget that. That was, that was 
that was uh you needed to see that you needed to see that how did you feel during the trial like did you feel like it was going well i don't know what's going well what you do is you listen and you make eye contact and i looked at every single one to say i didn't do this every single one did paul look at his i doubt it Bob's whole defense is to say that Paul is evil. He's a sociopath. And the problem for Paul is that the prosecution has a lot of evidence that tells the same story. That evidence after the break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Welcome back to the show. Shruti picks up the story with the prosecution's case against Paul Madrowski. So, back in the courtroom, unlike Bob Fracci, Paul is completely silent for his entire trial. He's surrounded by a team of lawyers, really good ones, from this big corporate law firm. And these lawyers had a lot to worry about because... The prosecution had dropped, you know, all of Paul's alleged connections to the Browns chicken massacre. And it turned out years later that there was actually zero connection. But still, Paul's lawyers were convinced that the members of the jury must have heard about this thing, that they came in prejudiced. And even without that, there were still all these pieces of incriminating evidence to contend with. For instance, police had found a map book in Paul's bedroom where if you open the page to Barrington, Illinois, you'd see right where Dean's body was found, a little mark, like X marks the spot. And then on top of that, crucial witness testimony from two of Paul's friends, Brian and Rose Faraci, who both say they'd heard him talk about wanting to kill Dean. But then, just before the trial, all of this evidence would just collapse. So, take the map. Before trial, we're preparing this like days before trial. Mm -hmm. My attorney is like, the evidence is now in the courtroom. They bring in, you know, the physical evidence. And my, one of my attorneys happens to look at the map book, and he turns to the page, and he's looking at it, and he's looking at it. And uh, he's like, this ain't no damn pen mark. This is a line by the publisher. And so Bill Von Haney, I believe. That's Paul's defense attorney. He orders 10 copies from Rad McNally. It's a map book manufacturer of the same exact map book. Mm -hmm. And it all 
all of them have the exact same line. It ain't no X marks a spot. It ain't no check mark. It ain't no, it's just a line. And it's on all the maps. So the map book, gone. And then Brian, Rose Faraci, they recant. Brian says, uh, I never heard Paul say anything about wanting to kill Dean. The police took my statements out of context. And then Rose... Rose Faraci went to the state's attorney's office to go over her testimony once again before trial. And Rose basically, she comes out and tells the truth. She's like, everything we said about Paul Madrowski and the Barrington murder, we just made up. And when I heard that news, my attorneys came to visit me like right away after they heard that news. I thought the charges were going to, were going to be dropped against me. And they said, no, no, the state's attorney's office will never, ever drop these charges. Here's why. I spoke to James McKay, who is the prosecutor, and it's been 20-something years since this trial, but like when you talk to McKay now, he's just as convinced and convincing about Paul as, I mean, as I imagine he was back then. This crime could not have been committed by one person, all right? The kidnapping of Dean Fawcett, a young adult, mm-hmm. by Robert Faraci? No, this, this, this crime was, was committed by two people. McKay says Dean was murdered on December 28, 1992. That's the day after that night of partying at the Ramada Inn. I believe that Paul Madrowski took him to those railroad tracks in Barrington and along with Bob Faraci, shot him in the head and then severed his body parts soon thereafter and disposed of those body parts never to be found. Paul has consistently painted himself as this side character. So this guy who always stood back, followed other people. But this is not at all how McKay sees him. McKay sees Paul as the mastermind. Everybody who was part of this ring all saw Paul as the lead manipulator of Dean. They all saw Paul as the person who used physical force on Dean to get him to commit these uh, thefts using these bogus checks. So what you're saying is that Paul was the ringleader? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Even though Robert was the older guy? Like he was what, like 26, 27 when? He wasn't that much older. Right, uh, Bob Madrowski. was seven years older than him, Bob Faraci. Okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, he was still an adult. He was 18 at the time of these uh, time of this murder. And uh, more importantly, uh, he was more streetwise than, than many other uh, criminals are. This guy had been committing several crimes as young as the age of 12. Um, uh, so whether he was 18 or 80, he was... Uh, Uh, a wise, cagey veteran in the criminal world. Did you ever have just, like, hard evidence that he pulled the trigger? The hard evidence, as you call it, uh, included, among other things, the medical examiner had testified about the severing of Dean's hands and his head and how the uh, cutting instrument, whatever the cutting instrument was, it was done with a steady hand. Uh, it wasn't uh, haphazardly done. And if you it, saw it, Paul Madrowski... So is that that's your evidence, like the steady hand? No. Well, that's part of all of the evidence. It's not just the one thing. 
you saw it when you talked to him that Paul Madrowski is one cool customer. He's not like the uh, the nervous, lying uh, weasel that Bob Faraci is. And McKay, he has a witness who he says can prove that Paul was this calculating killer. So on the second day of the trial, he calls this woman to the stand. Her name is Nadine Lenarchek. She's 33 years old, uh, neatly dressed, has long bleach blonde hair. And she testifies that she knew Dean. She was actually part of that whole Christmas shopping spree. You know, so that she was involved out. in the check fraud stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so Nadine's story is that she was alone with Dean that night. And he said to her at one point, if I get in trouble, I'm going to go tell the police everything. As in, I'm going to put this whole thing on Bob and Paul and the others. Uh-huh. And so Nadine apparently went and told Bob Faraci this. So the police are convinced this is their motive. They know Bob knew. He probably told Paul. And so their motive, you know, Dean was killed because these guys were afraid that he was going to rat them out. That makes sense. Yes. And so the other thing Nadine does is she puts Bob Faraci and Paul with Dean Fawcett right before he's killed. So Paul's story is morning of December 28th. He woke up in that hotel room and left. He left. Dean was sleeping. He never saw him again. Paul says that he drove to his sister's house that day uh, and was there until midnight. Nate, Why does he remember that December? Because uh, it's his dad's birthday. Okay. So this is his story. Uh, Nadine says that she was with Dean Fawcett December 28th. She was the eyewitness that saw uh, Faraci and Madrowski pull up in Madrowski's car. She saw Madrowski grab Dean Fawcett, force him into the back seat of that car, and then watch the three of them drive away. She never saw Dean again, and that date was the date that Dean Fawcett was killed. That feels pretty damning. Yes. And does she have any reason to lie? She I mean, she seems relatively unbiased, but there are problems with her testimony. So I'm actually looking at the trial transcript from that day and the Paul's defense attorney asks her, you know, uh, when she was a kid, he said, at that time you suffered some damage to the brain, right? And Nadine answers, yes. And then he asks, and when you're under stress, you experience difficulty seeing and hearing, don't you? Uh, McKay objects. He's overruled. And then Nadine says yes. And then the defense attorney asks, and there have been instances in your life where you have found yourself in places not knowing how you got there. Again, McKay tries to object, overrules, and Nadine says yes. And it just goes on like this for pages and pages. Uh, The defense attorney asks about her extensive drug use, cocaine. And Paul says in his blog that Nadine's answers during this cross-examination came off as so, quote-unquote, ludicrous that a few times there was laughter in the courtroom. So she's not exactly a witness you'd want to base your entire case on. You need more. And so McKay explains he has this other thing that he considers hard evidence, the gun. So police were very convinced that Dean was shot in the head. There was no gun that they ever found, but 
when they arrested Paul and they were interrogating him, they kept asking him, where's the murder weapon? Where's the murder weapon? And Paul says that at some point he said, I know where the gun is. And he says, I was just lying. I just said it under interrogation stress. But But he just implicated himself. Right. I know. It's asinine. How old is he? 18. Yeah. And... This this whole tail chase, it never ends. You know, who knows what Paul knew, maybe knew where the gun was, maybe he didn't. But the point is, the gun is never found. And once Paul claims he knows where the gun is, it would never leave the minds of the police. Jim McKay would bring it up throughout the trial. I mean, watch how he brings up the missing gun here with me when I ask him about physical evidence. Can you tell me um, about f- what was for you the most compelling physical evidence? The well, actually, you know what? Uh, the absence of of the physical evidence in in a in a way is compelling. Uh-huh. Madrowski, at the time of his arrest, knew exactly where the murder weapon was, and he refused to give that to the police. Refused to divulge the location of that gun. That speaks volumes. That that's powerful evidence of guilt. Jim just said the absence of evidence is compelling evidence. And he used this idea more than once in the trial. For instance, there's this reporter, John Carpenter. He told me the story of how McKay had submitted some evidence about how there was blunt trauma to Dean's head. And then somebody objected, saying that there's no evidence of blunt trauma to the head because there's no head. The head was never found. And it was one of these moments where you're sitting there watching and you're thinking, wow, this really kind of important testimony or piece of evidence might get thrown out. And there was like a, 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 a pause, but then McKay like jumped up and really emphatically said, Your Honor, I submit that absence of a head is clear and convincing evidence of blunt trauma to the head. His idea is, I am the law. I am outraged that this murder happened, and my job is to put these guys away. Jim McKay is saying to the jury every chance he gets, you know, Nadine Lenarchik, that missing gun, all of this is proof that Paul Madrowski is the killer. The problem is he doesn't have any physical evidence to place Paul at the railroad track that night. But he's saying it doesn't matter. I have something else that's perfectly adequate to convict him. So the third week of the trial, Prosecutor McKay calls John Robertson to the stand. Detective Robertson is the person who first arrested Paul and interrogated him right after. And according to him, Paul confessed to him and said, I knew that Bob Fracci wanted to kill Dean Fawcett. I didn't want to go along with him, but I told Bob, go ahead, use my car. Detective Robertson wrote all of this up in this very long, detailed report. I have it right here. It's like these, um, you know, it's neat typewritten notes. And he says, this is what uh, Paul told him. Bobby wanted me to go along to Houdini Dean. Bobby asked me to go with and I told him no. I told him he could use my car. I used the excuse to Dean that I was tired. and knew Bobby was going to Houdini, in brackets, kill Dean. I gave him my car to take Dean away. I went into the apartment, and I never saw or heard from Dean again. Which seems not so exciting because— Well, it actually seems contrary to everything. If they're trying to prove that he did it, 
how does it help to say that he said he didn't do it and wasn't there? Yeah. So they're, they're thinking we don't have enough physical evidence to show that he pulled the trigger. But we don't need that. And we can actually use this statement to get him convicted. And here's why. McKay is thinking about this law in Illinois that says you don't need to pull the trigger. All you need to have done is help someone you know is going to kill someone and you are accountable for that murder. Okay. okay? That actually, that doesn't seem like, yeah, that seems reasonable. at all. Yep. And so all Prosecutor McKay has to do is show that Paul helped Bob Fraji, lent him his car, uh, knowing, hoping that Bob would go kill Dean Fawcett. But Paul's lawyer believes that this law may not even apply to Paul. In this case, that, you know, in, in this case with the lending of the car. And he has a team of legal researchers look into it and they come back and they say, short answer, nope, doesn't apply. So Paul's defense team says, okay, go ahead, McKay, make your argument. We're not going to sweat it. But Paul, he says he was sitting there thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, I didn't lend my car to Bob Fraji that day. And second of all, I never told cops that I lent my car to him. So he just doesn't understand his defense attorney's strategy. Why isn't he challenging the cops? When that cop testified that I let Dean go to his death, I'm not very good. I'm not very good at reading people, but I could tell that the jury, they, they, their, their demeanor changed, their body language changed towards me. And I told my attorney while he was, in, while he was cross-examining that cop, I told him, you get the F back up there and you cut him down. What the hell are you doing? I think that's almost an exact quote. He was like, oh. What do you mean? He called you a cooperating witness. This is great. I said, no, it's not great. Go back up there and cut him down. Paul's so angry. He tells his lawyer, let me take the stand. Let me tell everybody that this guy Robertson is lying. And so we argue about this for a little while. And eventually he just says, look, if you if you say that you want to take the stand, I'm just going to quit. You can represent yourself. And I don't know if you know how stressful it is being under a murder trial, but that just that just threw me off. I didn't I didn't know how to deal with that. I asked Paul's defense attorneys several times uh, if they would do an interview with me, and they declined. And I was actually wondering, like this thing that Paul is claiming that this is a false confession, could that? I mean, could that possibly be true? I mean, people are always accusing police of falsifying confessions. But I did actually think that there were things here in this confession that felt that I have questions about. So, for instance, um, the report just repeatedly calls Bob Bobby. And, you know, Paul always calls Bob Bob. Uh, Another thing is, okay, so Paul was interrogated April 28th and 29th. And this report is dated and signed a whole 19 days later. Um, and had, st- I mean, so I get why that's unusual. I'm assuming. Can I tell you the most yeah. unusual thing? Yeah. The most unusual thing is, in in my eyes, <laughs> is uh, the police had questioned a number of other suspects and witnesses, like that's Bob Fracci. Had they done it in between? Exactly. Rose Fracci, Bob Fracci, and 
in all of those cases, they had either handwritten statements from these people or, like in Bob Fracci's case, they transcribed everything he said and he signed every single page. In Paul's case, none of that. Like You just have the detective's report and the only other signature there is another detective's. Like, you don't... I feel like people have different attitudes towards whether they trust law enforcement or not. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be super paranoid or super anti-law enforcement to believe that in the 1990s, a police officer in Illinois could have had a, could have forced a false confession or created a false confession. Like this was yeah. a documented thing that happened so much so that when Obama was a state senator, one of his big achievements was passing a law that said like police in Illinois have got to tape confessions because essentially like we don't trust the ones that the cops write down. Right. So I really wanted to talk to John Robertson and understandably, maybe um, he didn't want to talk to me. But his partner, John Koziel, who was also there during the interrogation, he did talk to me. And I have to say he had pretty good explanations for things. He said, you know, maybe Paul didn't want to sign a statement. Like that happens all the time where somebody says some things to the cops, but they don't want to put their name to paper because they're worried that they've already gotten themselves into trouble. That would make it worse. He says, we write reports after like days, weeks after the interrogation. That happens too. Like this was a big case. And most of all, he says, why would we have made up such an idiotic lie? We would, If we were to make up a lie to send an innocent man to jail, we'd make up a better one than loaning your car to go kill someone. And, you know, I want to make it clear, um, I didn't get into this business to ever lock up an innocent man. There would be nothing worse. I, I mean, we would, I, if I thought Paul was innocent, I'd be fight. I'd be the first one showing up at those hearings to fight for his innocence. I, I, it's just not something that is even in my psyche or anyone I ever worked with. Why would they have made this, this thing up about like you lending your car? Why? Because they take what you say and they manipulate it and they twist it into something. Right, right. But you told me time and time again, you said, I told the cops nothing. All I said was, no, I never give me said an attorney. That. I did tell them things under coercion. But uh, what they said I said is inaccurate. And some of it's outright false. But tell me what you actually did say. Like, help me understand this. You know, the Farachis did borrow my car all the time. And I did say that. The Farachis always borrowed my car. No, I didn't borrow Bob my car on the 28th to kill Dean Fawcett with. Never. That report is total garbage. Now, of course, yeah, there's, there's some truth in that garbage. But when you put it all together, it's bullshit. I've never heard you curse this much. Just got me on a bad day. It's the fourth week of the trial. Paul's lawyers had planned to call alibi witnesses on Paul's behalf, like Bernadette. Paul's sister, she was supposed to go up and take the stand and say, December 28th, the day that Dean was allegedly murdered, I was with Paul. He was at my house. It was my father's birthday, and he was nowhere near the scene of the crime. But she says that that day, Bill Von Haney, Paul's defense attorney, he had prepped her. She was ready to go. Um, we were there, ready to testify. And um, Bill Von Haney came out, and he told us, we're not going to need you. And I had this blank look on my face, like, what? You know? And uh, he says, the state never proved that Paul's guilty, and we don't really have to put on a defense because 
they never proved that he was guilty. And I remember going downstairs to the courtroom and talking with Paul. Paul was so angry. He wanted us to testify, and I told him, Paul, don't worry. Don't worry. Because he was very upset, visibly upset, um, that he wasn't going to testify and we weren't going to testify. And what was he, do you remember what he was saying? Like, what was he, yeah. You know, I don't, I can't quote him, but I know he banged his fist down on the counter. He was angry and crying at the same time. No, I need to testify. Everyone needs to testify. I just trusted them, and I kept telling Paul, no, don't worry about it. They know what they're doing. They've done this before. They know. We don't know. They know. So, yeah, the defense rests. And then the prosecution, McKay's partner, makes the closing statement. I'm going to read you the last lines. He points at Paul Madrowski and he says, They say that the eyes are the window to the soul. Don't look into his eyes. You may have shivers come up your spine. And surely don't touch him. For if you do, his body must truly be cold to the touch. The last time I cried, I was at trial. Over the last tears I shed. And it was when I realized that that jury was going to convict me. Mm-hmm. I could just I could just feel it. I knew I was going to be found guilty. And I, I met with my parents and I told them, I said, look, you don't have a son anymore because I knew the judge was going to give me so much time that I would never, ever be released. The two juries break to deliberate. Bob Fracci's jury comes back with the verdict, not guilty, which everyone thinks is shocking. After all, this was the man who had a signed, recorded confession saying he was there at the murder scene. And then Paul. Days later, Paul's jury comes back, and when they do, they say, we find you guilty. And here's why. Remember that whole argument about whether or not lending somebody your car could be the same as murdering someone? So the prosecution, turns out, was right, and Paul's lawyer was wrong. So not only did he not defend Paul against that, in his closing argument, Bill Von Haney, his his lawyer, he actually says, so what if Paul lent Bob Fracci his car? So he's like accidentally saying, so what if my client is guilty? Exactly. I actually asked Paul's current attorney, Jennifer Blagg, about this. And she said when she read this part of the transcript, she basically fell out of her chair. Did the trial have like a turning point, like a moment? Yeah, when Bill Von Haney said he loaned the car. Fucking put the nail in the coffin. Roll him out. It's over. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a turning point. Once your attorney concedes the state's evidence is correct and the state's evidence is sufficient to convict you, that's done. That's so crazy. Yeah, and Paul is up for the death sentence at this point. It's really hard to wrap my head around that. I know, and, you know, the reason I started paying attention to this entire trial is because I thought it would help me answer this question, which is at the heart of this whole thing. Is Paul who he says he is, or is he a murderer? Is his blog basically, you know, 
a hundred and something thousand words of a murderer pretending to be a charming eccentric. And in the end, what's frustrating is the prosecution, I think the prosecution never had to prove who Paul really was. I mean, they talked about it. They said he was evil. But to win the case, all they needed to say was, this guy, he lent his car to Bob Faraci. I mean, a thing that I feel like I wonder is, from from your perspective, looking at the trial, I think it can feel like the jurors, the people there got a really narrow view of Paul. Mm-hmm. But the people there could Because also... he didn't say a single word. He just sat there the entire time. Which right. is the exact opposite version of the Paul that I've been getting. I've been getting just all these words, like all these blog entries, all these phone calls. And I think that uh, somebody who was there, like, I wonder if they would say, well, you have a narrow view of him. Like, if all you know is what somebody looks like on paper, you don't know that. Absolutely. And that's exactly what they say. So I have spoken to reporters who covered this trial. I've talked to uh, jury members, uh, you know, who, who sat there and looked at Paul for five weeks. I've talked to Dean Fawcett's mother, who was there every day. And every single one of them says, listen, if you were sitting there in that room, you would know. I mean, one person said to me, you know, I don't believe, like, I think the idea of evil, evil as this concrete thing, I think that's really silly and dramatic. But honestly, sitting there in the room, that's how I felt, that I was in the presence of something really, really evil. Sruthi Binamaneni is a producer for our show. Next time on Reply All, what all of these people are seeing and the conclusion of our story on the inside. Reply All is hosted by PJ Vote and me, Alex Goldman. The show is produced by Shruti Pinamaneni, Fia Benin, and Chloe Prasinos. Our executive producer is Tim Howard. The show is edited by Peter Clowney. Production assistance from Tom Cody. The show was mixed by Rick Kwan and Austin Thompson. The show was fact-checked by Michelle Harris. Matt Lieber is the first day of the year that you can fall asleep with the window open. Special thanks this week to Eric Mennel, Eilish Shoneal, Zach Stewart-Pontier, Mark Smerling, Anthony O'Rourke, Jason Wee, Iona Seaworth, James Rico, Nicole Santilli, and Detective Kevin Croak. Big thanks to Richard McAdams of the University of Chicago for his excellent legal advice. And extra special thanks to Mary Kay Fawcett. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and our ad music is by Build Buildings. You can find more episodes at iTunes.com slash replyall. Our website is replyall.fail. Thanks for listening. We are taking next week off to work on some stories, but we will see you in two weeks for the conclusion of On the Inside.